0: This is a podcast by The Straits Times. Minister, at the National Day Rally, Prime Minister spoke about how international economic conditions are fundamentally changing, including how countries are relooking their supply chains. Now, over the last few years, Singapore has gone through several waves of supply chain adjustments. As someone who was instrumental in helping Singapore get through the crisis of supermarket runs early in the pandemic, and PM singled you out as well in his speech, what further supply chain disruptions might Singaporeans have to gird themselves for? And what kind of work is being done to help us get through them?
1: I see. Uh, First, uh, perhaps I should put on record that the credit is not really mine, it's really the whole MTI team. Uh, there are lots of people working behind the scene to get us all the supplies that we need from people from EDB, ESG, SETS, PSA, PIL, the NTUC Fair Pricing Xiong, and many others that uh, we probably won't have enough time to cover all of them, but it's really, I think our nation owes a debt of gratitude to all these people working quietly behind the scene. As PM mentioned, there are quite many factors that we should be quite concerned with uh, looking into the future. These include, for example, COVID-19, the pandemic itself, the disruption to ports, railroads, airports that we have seen. Then you have the war in uh, Russia and Ukraine and of course various other geopolitical tensions which add to the complexity of making sure that the previous supply chains continue to work. The second set of issue particularly on the energy front is about the investment to create new capacity. I think in the early days of the Covid-19 because of the sharp drop in the demand and people are talking about the green transition, so actually the investment in uh, energy capacity has actually not kept pace with the potential demand and now as the demand Uh, recovers, you are seeing a bit of an imbalance, which is why uh, many people predict that the high energy prices will be here for quite some time. Climate change is another issue about where the supplies of food may come from and the places where people can grow uh, food will also shift. And most recently you see the drought in uh, Europe and China and that has affected the rivers. And the rivers in many of these places are also critical to the supply chain. And I think PM also mentioned this uh, longer-term structural issue which is that China is facing an aging population. So whether in the next 10-20 years we can continue to have another big sizable economy like China to provide what we call the factory of the world is a question mark. Mm. I think there's also one other set of factors that is uh, is something that we should bear in mind. And that is the people's reaction to the supply uh, chain disruptions. Even during COVID, we have seen this happen. Sometimes people have the supplies, but they are not prepared to sell us the supplies, even if they are not uh, short of it themselves. And that is politics. People sometimes say that I cannot sell you things because, or I cannot be seen to be selling you things because my people are worried. And even personally for myself and my team during the COVID situation, we have uh, seen this before. We call up our suppliers, our friends overseas and say that oh why don't uh, you sell us this uh, since you have a surplus and the answer was sorry Mr Chan we can't really be seen to be exporting this because our people are worried and this is a big uncertainty in our whole supply chain because it's not just about whether people have or don't have the supply it's about whether people want to sell us the supplies even if they have it so I think we must be mentally prepared to Uh, face some of
0: these disruptions. Minister. You've, you know, painted quite a grim picture of sorts. What kind of work is being done to help us get through these uh, challenges that you've mentioned?
1: I think from my time in MTI, I would say that there are two sets of uh, things that we can do. One has to do with what we do at the country level. And the other set of things is uh, what we can do as an individual and as a corporate. So perhaps let me cover what we can do and what we are doing as a country. So we have always said that we have three uh, strategies at the national level. One, diversify, diversify and diversify. (laughs) Second, we will build up our own domestic uh, capacities and capabilities. Third, to stockpile as much as we can. But all these three strategies have their own inherent challenges. So for example, diversification, Uh, of course diversification makes sense, but it also costs money because uh, you don't necessarily enjoy the economies of scale. Now, the second uh, way that we can do this is to grow our own capacities, Uh, but that is also not as straightforward as it sounds. Because for example, if we have to grow our own vegetables or we want to produce more of our own proteins, uh, including uh, man-made proteins, that requires a huge amount of energy. Then when it comes to stockpiling as a third strategy, that also costs money. A very simple example is this, for us to buy something as simple as chicken from Brazil, it will take a lead time of two, three months for us to order, for the order to be fulfilled, and the meat and the proteins to be brought into Singapore. If we make a call today and place an order, and if there's no disruption, then we might have a surplus, Mm. uh, literally, have too much uh, chickens. Mm. But if we didn't make a call today and we didn't order, and something happened in the next two months and there is a disruption, then we might be critically short because you cannot just press the button and things just appear tomorrow. So I think a lot of credit goes to the MTI team and all the associated uh, suppliers to really make the best guess to estimate and look at the world situation and say, where are the likely disruptions that we may be facing in the next few months or the next uh, few years and then put in place the necessary measures in order for us to ride through this. So these three strategies, diversification, stockpiling and building our domestic capacity, I think we have been doing that and will continue to do that. But it's not easy, it's not easy because it's a daily work. But there's another part which uh, people seldom talk about and that is that all of us can do something. For example, in a crisis, if we all remain calm, it actually gives us a a better chance to secure the things that we want at the prices that we can afford. Because when other people think that we are panicking and we are not calm, then people will more likely to jack up the prices. Now the second thing that I think we as individuals can do is to make sure that we are flexible and adaptable in our choices. So again, in the recent example, when one source of protein is not available, we switch to other forms of protein, whether it's fresh or frozen, or just other forms of proteins. And once we have the agility to shift our preferences across uh, different types of uh, proteins or food, or other supplies, then it again gives our people the leverage. But there's one last thing that's very important for Singapore, which is another lesson that we learned through COVID, which is that it's one thing to have money to buy stuff, but it is necessary but not sufficient. We must also produce stuff that people want, especially in a crisis, so that in the worst case scenario, we can at least exchange the stuff required. And this has happened to us uh, throughout COVID, whereby people say that, well, I'm prepared to sell you this, but I also need these others. Can you help me source for this or do you produce this in exchange so it goes beyond money and that's why as part of the overall MTI work and as part of our overall economic ecosystem it is so so important for us to produce things that people value and people cannot easily bypass us so this goes beyond just making money uh, to buy stuff Mm. it is about having the means to do so and having the capabilities that people require especially in a crisis So the fact that we can attract vaccines, manufacturers, petrochemicals, semiconductors, these are all critical stuff that the world needs even in a crisis and that gives us greater confidence that we can better secure all the things that we need. But having said that, I must be very frank that we do everything that we can best effort but it doesn't mean that we will never face any disruptions in our supply chain because there are so many
0: variables altogether. So Minister, you would confidently say that you know Singapore right now is prepared for any disruptions that may come in the future. I wouldn't
1: say that we will not face any disruptions. All I would say is that uh, I know what MTI is doing. Mm. Every day they are always thinking what is the next disruption. And I think that is the spirit that uh, really uh, make me very proud of the teamwork in MTI and also all the associated supply chains people. because. It's not good enough for us to say that, oh, today I don't face any supply chain disruptions, I'm happy today. Mm. But their job is not whether to be happy today. Our job is to ask ourselves, in one week's time, in three months' time, in six months' time, in one year's time, what do we need Mm. uh, in order to not get into a situation that we
0: will be caught out. So, Minister? Supply chain disruption is one. Another challenge Mm. for Singapore is the need to build a world-class talent pool. Now, on Monday, details of the one pass were announced. Uh, To what extent is this a game-changer in helping Singapore woo the best and brightest vis-a-vis other top economies around the world?
1: Well, this is not a new challenge and I would say that this issue has been with us ever since 1965 when we first became independent. Because we are such a small country and every year we have a cohort of our 30,000-40,000 students and no matter how many good students we produce it will be very small compared to the global talent pool. So we must never underestimate the competition. Uh, So regardless of how much talent we have, we must always remember that (coughs) we need to develop the local talent pool as much as we can and at the same time find the necessary complement for those areas that we might not be strong in at this point in time. But we also understand, of course, that you know, we, when talented people come here, uh, some people might be afraid that they might bring along with them competition, uh, uh, whether they are truly complementary. But this is where we really need to juggle, right? Yeah. It's not always possible for us to bring in above-average person who is always below the every Singaporean. So that's why we need a two-pronged strategy, and we always have a two-pronged strategy firing on all cylinders. On the part of MOE, MOM, (coughs) MTI, we put in all the effort necessary to groom our students not just in the early years of what I call the first 15 years of their life but really to help them to keep growing for the next 50 years of their life beyond the school system and that's how we want to strengthen the competitiveness of our people. But we are not arrogant. We are not complacent. We know that no matter how we do this, there will still be some people around the world with that kind of a uh, unique talent that we might not have. Mm. And if possible, we would like to attract them to join t- Team Singapore to complement what we don't have. Uh, otherwise, they would be competing against Singapore with
0: some other teams rather than with us. The idea of wooing foreign talents has always been met with scepticism, skeptici- and um, you know, from certain quarters here that. There are loopholes that may be exploited uh, by those looking to come in. So, you know, we just want to get from you, you know, how how would you address those unhappiness that may come from Singaporeans, you know, with this uh, new one pass uh, framework?
1: So, I think every Singaporean can have the reassurance that the government will try to master the resources as much as we can, as well as we can, to give everyone a good start. Making sure that through the school system, we lay the foundation for them to learn throughout life and that they remain competitive throughout life and not just uh, in the first 15 years. How do we structure our training system to keep our people competitive in the next 50 years of their life beyond the school years? And that is important because you can never finish learning everything in school. And Singaporeans can have the confidence that if any country can invest this amount of money to our adult learners, Singapore must be one of them. Mm-hmm. We have the means, we need the cooperation of the individuals, we need the cooperation of the companies, but together, I think if any country can get this done, it must be us. But we need to change the mindset, it's not just about how well we produce uh, the students results in the first 15 years, how well they score for whatever exams they might be. It's very difficult for adult learners to go back to school what we call that, going back to school because they have financial responsibilities, they have family responsibilities. So we need to design a system whereby they literally have the school in their pocket. They can learn something, anytime, anywhere. So long as they put in the effort, we'll make sure that the resources are available to them. And we're going to do more and we're going to make more announcements in the course of the year Mm -hmm. up to the next budget on how we intend to step up the effort to make sure that our people stay competitive. And one last point that I will add on this is that our benchmark of success is really not just how many good jobs we create in Singapore and what is the local versus foreign divide. Our real benchmark of success is how many good jobs we create for Singaporeans in Singapore and beyond Singapore. When our companies grow and become competitive, they create new opportunities for our people beyond Singapore. That's also a tremendous plus for our people. But one of the very important things that we must remember is this. Many of the companies, be they Singapore companies here or foreign companies here, they are serving the global market. In order for our people to rise up and compete for those very top jobs, we must be able to compete on the global market. Mm. Which means that we must give our people the experiences that they need
0: in order <laughs> to lead global teams for the global markets. Mm. Mr. On that, you know, talking, you know, you talk about uh, having global explo- ex- uh, exposure and all that. Um, through your interaction and through, you know, your experience as um, an anti-education ed- minister and as a former labour chief as well, if you could, you know, tell us um, what kind of talent, you know, uh, do Singaporeans, you think, lack compared to our foreign counterparts? I always do this uh, experiment
1: with the students that I, I meet. I say that supposing uh, you are offered an etiquette to any part Uh, anywhere in the world. Where would you go? And why? Mm -hmm. Uh, Many of our students are actually not afraid to travel overseas to learn. But I find something a bit lacking, which is that they all tend to gravitate to the paths well trodden. So they go to the developed countries, they go to the developed cities, Uh, maybe it's uh, easier to integrate, maybe uh, the experience to them is more enriching. But I always remind myself of some of these global companies when I was at MTN and NTUC and how their HR share with me what they were looking for. The technical competencies from the Singapore students, I think they pretty much take it as a given that we are very strong uh, in the basic technical competencies, mathematics, science, uh, languages and so forth. But they are looking for a few other things to try and distinguish those Singaporeans that stand out from the, the rest. One, it's the spirit of inquiry are they keen to understand another <coughs> culture are they keen to understand a different market do they have the gumption to go and venture into another market even being the first mover there you know go into a different market and set up operations down there now that requires gumption that requires a lot of uh, uh, initiative the second thing that i think many of the global companies look at is not just how well we work as Team Singapore with fellow Singaporeans. They will look at how we work with foreign counterparts in different markets, whether we have that um, ability to bring the whole team together with different backgrounds, different cultures, different languages, and yet produce a winning team. Those are, maybe some people call it soft skills, but Mm -hmm. I don't really like that word because I think this is something that's quite tangible. A skill set that we need to equip our people, and they want to know whether you have something what we call the unique selling point, the USP, which is why now as the education minister, I always remind ourselves, uh, my educators, our students, that every one of us can be unique. Every one of us can acquire that some unique characteristics that will add to the uh, the company. Because I always start off these conversations with the students and the teachers, and I ask them this question: I say. Imagine you are going to uh, an interview with a potential employer. Mm. What do you think your potential employer will ask you first, mm. right? So I said, I mean, like, supposing I ask you, what, what do you think?" I don't know what straight times asked you when you first <laughs> joined. Okay, but what would a typical question be, mm. right? And they all always come up with these quite telling answers. They will say like, "Oh, why should I employ you, right?" Or "What do you bring to the company, right?" Mm. I thought. Yeah, those are pertinent questions. What do you bring to the company? Very few people ask you about oh, what's your PSLE score? <laughs> what's your this score? Because today people are looking at skill sets beyond that generic title or whether you got a degree here and a degree there. Even for some of the people who so-called graduated in ICT, if are not just interested in your generic ICT degree, they actually ask, so what do you actually do in this uh, ICT degree that is of value to my company? And what can you bring? that's of value to my company. So I think we need to encourage our people to start thinking in this way, that every child is unique. Our job in the education system is not so much as whether they just score well or not in a certain exam. It's whether they have the confidence to bring out that unique selling point that they can convince the potential employers to employ them. And whether they have this spirit to want to keep learning. Mm. Because I think most employers are very realistic. They don't expect you to know everything Uh, when you first join but they all want to know whether that particular Singaporean student or that particular Singaporean graduate is he or she someone with a keen sense to learn because if you have a keen sense to learn even if you don't know all the things today you can pick it up but if you are just satisfied with uh, perhaps what your curriculum has covered and you have nothing above and beyond that then the employer will find it quite hard to say that oh. I want to take you in because you provide some unique uh, selling proposition to me Mm -hmm. and add to my company's portfolio. Mm -hmm. So that's how I will encourage our fellow Singaporeans to, to think about that. And I'm quite confident that our system will give us a strong baseline compared to many other countries. But that is in itself necessary but not sufficient. We must keep building on that baseline to scale higher peaks.
0: So we, we would see, um, you know, more initiatives towards uh, that direction that, that, that you mentioned, you know, yes. to, to inculcate our students with those uh, skill sets. Yes.
1: So if you look at our education system as yeah. a whole, when we first started uh, our nationhood journey, we focused a lot on the school years, primary schools, secondary schools, and then uh, maybe the polytechnics and the universities. And we still do. That's the core part of our business about 10 years ago we moved a bit upstream which is to the early years or the preschool years because more and more scientific evidences are showing that a strong solid foundation will help our students to do even better in their school years so we spend a lot of effort particularly for the less privileged families to make sure that we help them to level up so that no one will start off with too big a disadvantage at the starting line in the mm. primary school the next step of our investment journey is not just these two parts now it's the next part the 50 years beyond the first 15 years and if we can do that i think that will make a significant shift in our competitiveness Mm -hmm. and but nobody has a simple solution because 50 years many cohorts the person at 28 years old learned in a different way from the person at 38 48 and 58 they are all adult learners they grow up with different backgrounds they they have different pedagogies and anthropologies, so we need to figure out different ways to reach out to our adult learners. But they all share the same need, which is that every few years, they must we must upgrade ourselves, learn something new, so that we can remain competitive as a nation.
0: Minister, separately, another change that uh, we saw this week: um, our children could finally go to school without masks on uh, for the first time in over two years. PM Lee in his uh, National Day Rally speech had said that, you know, children need to see the facial expressions of the teachers and one another. Minister, have there been feedback from schools and parents on whether the constant wearing of masks has affected the learning and development of Singapore's younger children?
1: Well, there are two parts to it. We have been very fortunate that most of the learning has not been impacted that much because we were able to have the proliferation of the devices, we could continue home-based learning even during the toughest of COVID's time. But that's just the academic learning and the technical learning if you like. But what we must also be concerned with is the social-emotional development of our children. And I think the feedback from many parents and uh, educators is indeed the prolonged wearing of masks, the prolonged um, segregation of our students. not being able to mix with their classes, and then with their schools, have definitely an impact on their social emotional bonds. It might also have a longer term impact on their resilience and so forth. So I think we have seen, uh, even with the gradual easing of the measures, not the latest, uh, being the optional mask in the indoor environment, that our students are reconnecting, re- making best use of the time to rebuild those bonds going out for outdoor camps, going out for outdoors adventures, looking at the facial expression, body language uh, of the party that they are interacting with. All that, I think, we can't measure it in the short term, but intuitively, I think all educators and parents know that all this will have a longer-term impact on the balanced development of our children.
0: Minister, this is not uh, something that was uh, brought up uh, in the National Day Rally, but in view of the recent announcement on the pay hike for teachers, uh, Teachers whom the Straits Times spoke to generally welcome the incentives, but they also say that other challenges uh, need to be addressed. Mm. They, are, they talk about the volume, mm. the complexity, and the breadth of work have grown in the past decades. Minister, it is a long-standing issue, one that still recurs, you know, despite measures like the hiring of teaching and administrative aids. What other measures might MOE be considering in trying to resolve this issue?
1: So I'm actually very proud of our uh, MOE teachers and educators because without them actually we would never have been able to get past the COVID. You know, when I talk to many of my counterparts overseas, the first thing that they always talk about is, the, do you have a digital divide? Do you have a lost generation? But you know, we have by and large be able to mitigate many of these negative impact. And that's not just because of technology, but it's because of the solid cadre of uh, teachers and educators that we have in our school system. Now, the workload It's high because we as parents, we as a society also have rising expectations of what we expect from the school system. Obviously, as you have mentioned, we have actually employed many more teachers where we can, especially for special needs, uh, for some of those uh, counselors, for those high-needs families and students, administrative staff and so on and so forth. But my vision is that actually we go a bit beyond that and I will cover this in a few areas. First, I think there's still a lot of potential for us to leverage on technology. While we may not be able to change the average class size uh, overnight because there's only so many people that we can recruit of certain quality to become educators, what we need to do is to leverage technology to allow certain lessons to have what I call bigger class sizes because when they go online they use asynchronous learning, they use self based learning, the students can cope, they will be able to stretch themselves further. Now that will also free up time for our educators to spend more time on the higher-need student. So we have seen very good examples during COVID whereby teachers spend less time uh, preparing their lessons plan because they are now able to pool their resources. So for example, if you look at our student learning space, what we call SLS, inside there, many of the teachers have put their teaching materials there. So it allows other teachers to access the materials. So I would say the 80-20 rule, 80% you can get it from the baseline, 20% you have to customize it according to your class needs. The second part that I think we can all do is that there must be a positive relationship between the teachers and the families. Mm. Because you know the students only spend so much time in the school, they spend actually more time outside the school. But the two need to work in concert. And we need the parents and the teachers to have the same uh, expectations on what we should do and what we should not do for the children. I think as parents, we all, all are rather protective we want the best for our children, but we must also have a shared understanding with our teachers that uh, which are the areas that we should let our children find their own way. Having to deal with uncertainties, untidiness is part of growing up so that they can become more resilient. And if we can do that with that proper understanding between what is expected between the parents and the teachers, then that will also free up some capacity for our teachers to focus more on the higher-need students. But this is a constant conversation and it's not a one-size-fits-all because different schools will have different profile of students. So for example, a simple example is like a parents-teacher's meeting. Uh, actually, for the vast bulk of the students and the parents, they would need a generic brief uh, on what are the areas to improve on, to focus on. But there'll be a small group of students that we will need to pull out with their families to work with them so that can be a more targeted. The third area that I think we would like to do more and like to partner uh, the society to do more is alumni mm-hmm. because very often you find that many of the established schools they have very strong alumni network that bring with them new capabilities to complement the teacher and if we can do that even uh, career talks career guidance you know how to manage uh, difficult situations uh, mental health issues when we are able to leverage on these community resources alumni capacity then I think it will strengthen our system for the good of our students and at the same time allow our teachers to have a more balanced workload. Mm. So I want my teachers to be able to have the chance to regularly go for uh, teachers work attachment so that they grow. So that when they bring back new connections from outside the school system, they share their stories with their children they share with them the possibilities of the multiple pathways of success so that they can all help their children to find their way forward. So it will not just be about policies, structures, but it's also about our support system, our culture, to make sure that we give the best chance for our teachers to succeed. And I always say this when I go to schools and visit them every week, uh, every few days I will be in one school, I always want to look at the teachers First, mm. If the teachers have the sparkle in their eyes, I don't have to worry about the students. Right? But if the teachers are tired and they feel overwhelmed by the societal or the parental expectations, then I think we will start to worry.
0: So Minister, are you seeing more
1: sparkles when you visit yes. the
0: schools? Yes. Okay, <laughs> uh,
1: It's also part of my job to encourage them so that mm. they can continue to have that sparkle in their eyes. And I always find that when a teacher goes out and learns something themselves, they always bring back something new to the school to enrich their learning. And one of the things that I always check with my teachers is this. I don't ask them what subject they teach and what do they do in schools and so forth. I always ask them, what do you do outside school? Because they are also my ambassadors and role models for lifelong learning. Because when the students say that, aha, my teacher at this age is learning karate or uh, uh, you know doing uh, some other uh, ICT uh, or," Uh, Staff or one then they say that, hey, actually, uh, I also have to keep learning, you know, because even my teacher is learning. So I think, you know, in a very indirect way, they are also our role models of how we want to imbue in our children this spirit of lifelong inquiry.
0: Minister, thank you so much thank for you. your insights and perspectives and, of course, for your time today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much.
1: That was a podcast by The Straits Times. Send your feedback to podcast at sph.com.sg.